Katrina, do you want to introduce yourself? Sure. I'm Katrina Owen. I do development for a company called Splice.com, where I do backend development and Go. On the side, I work on a bunch of open source stuff. Well, not a bunch of different open source these days. It's all mostly about a side project that I started a couple years ago called Exorcism.io. Exorcism, not as in demons and things, but as in exercising. Um, and what else do I do? I read sci-fi and I watch tech talks on video. This is probably not the most important thing you said, but, uh, when do you watch tech talks typically? <laughs> Cause <laughs> um, I always, I always want to watch talks, but I never find myself in a situation where I can like sit down for a half hour to an hour and just watch a video. Yeah, It's usually on Sundays when I'm eating chocolate or mac and cheese and I just <laughs> want a break from my life. I'll turn on some tech talks. Um, lately, the last talk that I watched was um, a keynote by Kathy Sierra at Fluent Conf. I'll send you the link. It was amazing. She talked about developing expertise, about how we're draining cognitive resources sort of all the time when we're learning tech, doing tech, using tech, um, reading documentation, and how all of our cognitive resources come from the same, she calls it the same tank. So if we spend cognitive resources trying to sort through documentation, um, because we're trying to do some crazy ops thing on Amazon, um, then we are have also burnt through our supply of willpower, and it makes it a lot more um, likely that we're going to go eat a really terrible for us dinner instead of something healthy. Oh wow, that's super interesting. Yeah, that was that was fascinating. And she talked about um, sort of the thing that I'm obsessing about lately is how we. We often, we have so many things to learn, so many like huge and small things to learn and they all kind of pile up and get in each other's way. Um, and so we spend a ton of time practicing everything at once and not really getting any better. And she said that that's a problem for a couple of reasons. One is because when, when we're not, like we have the thing, we have sort of three stages roughly. One is in the beginning when we don't know how to do it. And then there's a middle stage when we can do it, but it requires a ton of cognitive resources. And then there's a third stage where you can do it. It's kind of gone into some sort of automatic, um, pre-conscious where you're not burning cognitive resources to do it, you can just do it. And your level of skill at that point can be can be varied. Like you might be really, really um, doing a poor quality uh, job of doing the skill, but it's automatic. And so it's not burning through your cognitive resources or with, you know, most experts, it's, uh, they, they do it at a very, very high quality consistently um, and they're not burning resources. And so what she was saying is that we have, we have two problems with putting so many things that we're trying to learn all at once. One is that as we practice, we are, sort of burning the the neural pathways of being mediocre, of not doing it well, of being a beginner. And so because practice makes perfect, uh, permanent, not perfect, um, that's a problem. So, uh, and it's also a problem because we're burning resources. And so we don't have those resources available for other things. And so her, one of the solutions that she mentioned in the talk was to take, um, break things down. First of all, like put a lot of things back on the first board and not try to learn them all at once. And then second of all, to break things down into tiny, tiny micro skills and then bring those skills over to sort of the expertise, automation, um, fluency part uh, of your brain one at a time. That was pretty fascinating. So like focus on one thing at a time and not practicing everything at once? Yeah, and not only one thing, but one tiny thing. Like if you're learning piano, um, if you, she she gave sort of as a rough measure, a, a 
if you can learn, go from can't do it to do it automatically and well in one to three sessions of 45 to 90 minutes each, then the skill is small enough. So it might be, if you're practicing a piece on the piano, it might just be one measure at half time or oh, yeah. it might be um, just a very, very small thing, not, not the whole skill. So how would that translate to something like a programming language when you want to learn something new and then you, you know, are kind of immersed in the language, maybe a new IDE and then all of the libraries as well? Yeah, uh, I've been thinking about that. <laughs> so <laughs> one of the things that I am working on developing right now is a prototype of something that will help you learn tiny, tiny slivers of it may be syntax or it may be like a, a certain idiom or a certain way of solving just one thing um, and collecting hundreds of examples of, of how that is done so that you get a bunch of different, like slightly different, so that your brain can start picking out the invariants, like the, the, the ways in which all of these examples are the same even though they are different. Um, and doing, you know, doing the same tiny, tiny thing over and over and over again. Does that make sense? Yeah. 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 But there are certain things that are the same in, for programming in each language, right? Like, mm -hmm. if I want to learn how to write a function and then how to loop. Yeah. Stuff like that. I don't know yeah. about the IDEs, but... Oh, yeah. I've never used an IDE, so I can't help you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure. But I'm sure that there are things, like, with if you're learning your IDE or, or whatever tool, it might be just pick you know, one type of action, one thing that is going to, like, if, if you're using Vim, it's like moving around by searching instead of moving around by arrows or by, by like, the HJKL keys. If you just practice searching for, I don't know, just a half hour, um, or even, like, five minutes in the morning, five minutes in the evening, but only practice searching, like having a big document and jumping around the document by, by searching, and then doing that you know, five minutes here in the morning, five minutes in the evening, five days in a row, you probably will have figured out or sort of brought to automatic, um, the automatic place in, in your brain, how to move around by searching. And you can probably do that one thing at a time, one shortcut at a time, um, with very, very few minutes of practice. Right. Do you think it's easier the second time that you're learning something, the same no. language, no? Um, well, <laughs> uh, that depends. I think, so every, learning anything is hard. Like, it just requires a ton of effort because the whole, the whole point of learning is doing something that you don't know how to do and doing something you don't know how to do just takes an enormous amount of resources. And, However, learning the second language, provided that it has some similarities with the first language, that it might have the same, some similarities in syntax or the same paradigm or something like that. I think that the second time around, there are a lot of things that you know already, and so you're not having to learn them the second time around, even though it is um, a fresh language. The fact of learning things just being inherently difficult reminds me of the book titles like Learn Python the Hard Way or like those other kind of yeah. jokish titles. <laughs> Yeah, I, I don't actually see Learn Python the Hard Way as being a joke. Um, Zed Shaw does an amazing job at just admitting that learning is hard. Yeah. And so he applied the the ideas from learning how to play guitar. Like in music, they know a lot about practice, a lot more than in computers, it seems. And so he applied the same lessons that or the same sort of styles of learning from learning guitar to learning programming and just said, you have to do a lot of typing. So here, type this. And it works really well. What I, I think doesn't work really well is, you know, learn HTML in for 24 hours. 
there's a really great article called uh, "Learn How to Program in Ten Years," and it's but, it's not. Oh, sorry, go. Oh, it's just like those twenty-four hour ones bother me because it's such a it's a trap. Because yeah. it's when you think twenty-four hours, you think a day, but it's literally twenty-four hours. <laughs> is yeah. actually how they lay out that content as well. It, right, it's like twenty-four it's hours. Kind of, of disingenuous. Work. Right, yeah, which you wouldn't do in a day, um, but even even then, like, what can you do in twenty four hours? It's, I mean, it's not a whole language, that's for sure. Yeah, I mean, I think I mean people, I think we do we we shoot ourselves in our own feet sometimes. I think because uh, at least when I am trying to to teach, I also sometimes will I'm guilty of suggesting like, oh no, just give it a try, like you know, let's. Let's just do it. And then that kind of leads to people having an expectation that they'll walk out of an eight-hour class being, like, masters of JavaScript. Yeah. Um, I think... Which I is, think like, we'll... not a reasonable expectation. Totally. Um, but I, I think... That you have to trick them into getting in the room, though. I don't know. That, that might be true. I don't know. Marketing. I, yeah. I, I feel like I, there's, a, there's an ad that comes up in my Twitter feed about once every three months, and it makes me so mad. Um, it says, um, become... Become a software engineer in ten weeks. I just drive me crazy. Oh yeah, yeah. Because it's For so like a boot camp. <laughs> yeah, it's it's one of the boot camps, and I, I mean the boot camp thing is totally, I think a totally fair thing. But the let, let's be honest here, you're you're not going to become an engineer, and let's not even call it engineer. Like that's kind of embarrassing. An engineer has, I don't know, five years of university and a ton of like very specific skills. And if you're in a boot camp for 10 weeks, sure, you'll know how to build a few things. You'll know how to use a framework. You'll know, you know, you'll have some skills that will let you get some things done, but you will be, you will still be a novice. You will still be like maybe an advanced beginner at some certain skills. You're not going to be able to go and do a routinely, you know, competent job at some kind of any web development job. It's just not going to happen. Is that so depressing? you were part of Turing School, right? <laughs> I was for a how did year. You, how did you all, like, uh, what did you tell the students that well, they would be capable of at the end? So I was not a part of the marketing, and okay. um, uh, I was quite honest with students, um, maybe to a fault. Like, I don't know... I don't know if that was depressing to students when I said that, no, you are not going to be a junior developer after six months. You know, you are going to be um, a beginner who can become a very good junior developer. We are going to give you the skills that will let you survive being a new in the field, new in the field of development and, and having a job. They, their marketing says that you will go out and you will be a junior, a solid junior developer. And I think that for a few people that might be true if they have been doing a lot of things on their own for, I don't know, a couple of years, just messing around, doing WordPress sites or doing whatever Rails, um, you know. I, th I think that for a few people, that's maybe all it takes is six months of, you know, consistent, solid instruction and access to the resources and the, the um, you know, both in terms of technical resources and tutorials and projects and other students and also the instructors. I think for some people it might be true that in six or seven months you can, you can get to a place where you are, you know, a solid junior developer. I don't think that is the case for most people. Um, I think that for most people, if you have never programmed before, it can get you started. It can get your foot in the door, and that is an amazing thing. Yeah. Uh, 
A lot of people I know that came out of the those kind of boot camps, though, seem to know that their learning's not done. And I've seen a lot of people, you know, with like a college degree who think, you know, they'd go to school for four years and then they're just kind of like owed a job and their learning is over. Yeah, I've I've, I've seen both of those during <laughs> in, in boot camps, though. I have like I went to a meetup not too long ago and was talking to a person and I didn't know that person was at, or was at a boot camp or had been at a boot camp. I was talking to that person as, you know, this is just a developer um, and I was asking them what they do and they were like, oh, yeah, I'm a JavaScript developer. And I don't know how we we came into like asking I, I was asking them like how you know at what level oh, I think it was because at the time Splice was hi like hiring for a front-end developer and I was I was kind of saying well we're looking at you know intermediate to senior um, and they were like oh yeah I'm an intermediate JavaScript developer and um, it turns out that they had been doing development not JavaScript development but any development for two months and so it's very clear to me that they had no idea how little they know at that point. Um, some people coming out of boot camps are, I think, uh, very overconfident. And I think that when they meet the real world um, and a real development job, they're probably taking down a few notches. Um, yeah, I guess, I guess uh, a part of like measuring yourself is like, can I build something from scratch and, and, and get it working? Mm -hmm. uh, and, that, and that is like one, one really difficult skill to obtain. Uh, and it's definitely possible to, yeah, I, I, I suppose not in two months of having no experience to get, get to that point, but uh, definitely at the end of a boot camp. Uh, but then there's like a whole other slew of like development skills, like communicating and like figuring out requirements and doing architecture. And uh, it's de there's definitely a, a very large forest. And I could see how getting, you know, one tree built might make you think that you're. Yeah. In the middle of your yeah. learning. <laughs> yeah, it might also be a little bit about, and I'm I am in no way knocking people who go to boot camps or knocking you know or knocking the boot camps themselves. I think it's I think it's an amazing thing to be able to go somewhere and have someone help you take the first step because the first step is really really freaking hard, um, and especially yeah. in in programming like there's. There are a ton of resources. There are a bajillion resources. Some of them are great. Most of them are crap. Um, and how do you know? Like you can't because you, you know, like if you could know, you wouldn't be a beginner. And so there's like you're you've got this catch twenty two. And being able to have someone help you get started is it's 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 amazing. Um, and I t completely lost my thread of thought I was going to have a point and I was going to not be hedging for you know, a while here. But um, what, were what were we talking about? <laughs> Let's change the subject. Uh, cool. <laughs> how have you found the transition from uh, Ruby to Go? It in many ways was... So I find I find learning difficult. I find things very very hard. There are some parts of Go that are feel very familiar, and so um, so there there are parts of like just writing some code that feel that feel familiar and okay and not too hard. But there are parts of the language that I still feel very unsure about. Like there are, there are um, some of the features of the language that I use sometimes but I use them badly I get stuck I have race <laughs> conditions um, like I write I write bugs like nobody else in go um, and I feel like there's a lack of resources for there there's there are a ton of resources where <laughs> they'll show you like the syntax is easy to find it's a small language it's consistent yeah. the syntax is great but the how do you think in go is not obvious and there are 
like most, it yeah. seems like most of the Go programmers are just really, really smart, and so they don't realize that it's kind of hard to know what they're talking about when when they're explaining things. And it's like, oh, but just this crypto thing. And it's like I don't even know the first thing of what you're talking about. I don't know where to look to find out what you're talking about. I don't know what question to ask to help clear, like to to get you to clarify. And so a lot of the times, um, I just kind of feel overwhelmed and incompetent. <laughs> but on the other hand, I've been productive for a year in the language. Like it's it's not like I'm not getting things done. It's just that I am definitely still very much a beginner in the language. Um, and like if I if I have a, a side project, if I have just some data munging to do, I'm usually gonna go do it in Ruby, not in Go. Right. The way that you architect um, what you're building at Slice are are the the Go portions are they smaller services? Like I'm assuming you're not building like a monolith with Go. Um, we have uh, the entire backend um, API is in Go. Okay. And we have a number of packages that are sort of things that are not part of the API, but that the API uses. So we we write parsers to parse the session files for the various um, digital audio workstation session, like saves or whatever. Um, oh, right. So all of, all of that is going to be in Go. All of the helper code is in Go. Can you talk about Splice real quick? Or yeah, sure. What? Um, yeah, it's... Uh, so they are incredibly ambitious in the field of music. They are looking at, there, there was a shift um, a, in the mid to late, late 90s, I would say, from going to very uh, analog to digital. And so a lot of things that used to be actual machines are now software built into um uh, built into larger suites or just standalone like plugins and things. Um, the there there is a shift that has not happened completely in music, and that is going from um, standalone to distributed to collaborative. Uh, everyone works works on their own machine. It's very very difficult to collaborate. If you and and these files are huge when you're making music. The 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 actual artifacts of what you're making, they are huge. And so people are using Dropbox and you send it and all of these um, sort of tools to work around this problem of trying to collaborate. And even then, it's, um, it's a difficult thing. And so Splice wants to make it seamless to collaborate. And they also want to, um, in the process, make it uh, safe in the sense that you don't lose your work. A lot of people have experienced you know, working for months uh, on a project and then having their laptops stolen or having it crash and losing all of their work um, because backups is, is a hard problem. I hate to like say like the Uber but for X kind of meme, but like does it sound like kind of like GitHub for musicians? Kind of, yeah. Um, people people have said that. No, it's not using Git on the back end because right. a lot of these session files are binary and Git doesn't deal very well with binary. Um, but yeah, uh, it does the both. So the the Git side of things, which is the 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 version control part of it, and then the GitHub side of it, which is the collaboration piece. Right. Yeah. It's really cool. Were you writing Go before you moved to your current company? A little bit. Um, I was using it a little bit for exorcism, for particularly for the command line client. So um, the bit that lets you pull down problems to your local machine and then submit them back up to the website. That's all in Go. 
when you can edit the podcast in Slice. That might be a good oh. idea. Oh, yeah. Can we use the po- the, your company <laughs> for sp- uh, the podcast? So you probably wouldn't get anything out of it. Um, there's So the what Splice does is it um, looks... So it monitors um, certain projects or certain files for changes, and then it will upload, as, as soon as you make a save, it will upload the project file um, to the website, and then we'll do some analysis on the back end to figure out what dependencies, like what samples or, or whatever you're using, and then we'll um, upload those dependencies as well, so that when somebody else downloads it, they get not only your project file, but also the, the, de- the dependencies, the sample files, so that you can be doing remixes on both, you know, on both ends. Um, with a podcast, you're just basically going to have one big file. And so you won't really, there won't, there's no editing on the website itself. The website is, uh, it, like, like with programming and Git and GitHub, you use your own editor to, to write your code. Um, with Splice, you use your own digital audio workstation to make your music. Oh, okay. Well, we could add a drum track to the podcast. Mm-hmm. You could do that. Intro <laughs> <laughs> music. How's exorcism and what's coming up for exorcism? Exorcism is a lot of work. <laughs> it's exciting and sometimes a little bit um, scary, I think. Like, there are a lot of people using it, and I there are a lot of things that I don't know how to do. Uh, right now, the most exciting thing is that I'm working with um, a designer who knows how to do design, knows how to do user interface design, but even more importantly, knows how to start at the beginning and talk to humans about, you know, how, how they're thinking and what they need. And so um, Jen Dodd, she's a designer at Pivotal Labs in New York. She is offered to help get exorcism onto a more sort of well-thought-out track um, and she's doing it as open source which is kind of amazing like a lot of I've, I've rarely met any designers who do open source work so I'm super excited about that that's really cool yeah it doesn't seem like there's a lot of open source definitely needs a lot of design help yeah and especially the sort of human side of design it's not like lipstick on a pig it's really thinking how how do you interact with this thing this tool this idea how does this idea support you becoming um you know a better person or a more interesting person or just getting something done so that you can get on with your life and do something else right Another thing with an exorcism that's been really interesting lately is for the longest time I've had a really hard time focusing in on what is exorcism really about. Like what, how, so many people, different different people use it for different purposes. Like some people are using it to practice just the basic syntax of a new language, but they're programmers in their day job. And so the, the whole like programming learning programming aspect is, is not important to them, but other people have never been a programmer, and so they come to the site learning, wanting to learn JavaScript or Java or, or Python or Ruby. Um, and then you have some people who are, are comfortable in the language that they use every day, and they just want to go deep and have these conversations with other people who are going deep in the language and really think about the trade-offs and the idioms and what is clean code and um, and so people use it very, very differently. And on, on GitHub, all of the issues like are all over the place. And for a while, I thought like exorcism had a million problems, like a million. Everything is wrong with exorcism is what I thought for a while. And then I started going through all of the issues and categorizing them and figuring out, well, what, how do these 
group together. And I realized that exorcism has maybe, you know, six or seven major problems. Um, and a lot of the issues on exorcism, on GitHub for exorcism, were things like people are experiencing some sort of pain and so they would suggest some random solution. And that's wonderful. Like, they are making, they are thinking about how can we solve this pain. But it turns out that the random solutions are not the interesting thing. The underlying pain is the interesting thing. And so if it's possible to kind of sort through and and analyze all of the issues it's possible to co come up with a, a smaller list of what the actual real underlying problems are and then we can start addressing those in a systematic way and I realized as I was doing that sort of process that the most important thing about exorcism is the conversation. It's something that oh, there are a lot of resources out there where they're really great resources, great tutorials, great ways of, of practicing and learning and puzzles and challenges. And very few of these things have, um, oh dear. Are you hearing, are, are you hearing that music? <laughs> That's okay. Yeah. Oh yeah. Ooh. Okay, so there are very few of the resources out there that have um, human involvement. There are very few places where you can come in and have someone who is a person on the other end notice where you are in your process of learning. Notice that one thing that you seem to be struggling with and say, hey, you should go look at this one resource. That's exactly what, you know, I think would help you get unstuck right here. And um, so in many ways, I, I want to figure out how to make exorcism um, a lot more about the community, about the people, about the conversations. Um, it's been a very sort of haphazard process about whether or not the conversations are high quality. And I want all of the conversations to be high quality. I want everyone who comes to the site to have a useful conversation. I want them to have it quickly. I don't want people to have to wait weeks before they have an interesting conversation. Um, and so that's a, that's a huge challenge. I have no idea how, um, <laughs> how that's going to happen. I do know that I have to involve a lot more people. I have to you know, stop trying to do everything myself and let the community drive larger, much, much larger pieces of the work. Have you had to police the conversation at all, or do you find that people are generally nice? I have not policed the conversation. I don't know if other people have had to. I have found that most of the time people are nice. Um, I'm I'm almost scared to know if they're not, but of, of course, like I I have to know. So if people are not nice, like if you come across a conversation that is not um, a helpful conversation, then I should probably know about it so I can figure out how to deal with it. Um, the thing that I notice about a lot of the conversations is that we don't we know we don't train people in our industry to have conversations. Like we don't know how to have a useful conversation about code. We have never really we've never really learned how to give useful critique about code. Like a lot of people will come in, they'll kind of drop in on a, on a solution on exorcism and say, hey, thumbs up, good job. And it's like, that's not very helpful. It's very nice, but it's not very helpful. It doesn't tell me like, well, what did I do right? What was interesting about what I did? How, how if I were to repeat, wanted to repeat my success, how would I go about doing that? Um, so I've noticed that the people who give really good feedback, they do, they do a few things very specific things that I would like to figure out how to help other people practice, I think. Um, one of the things that they do is that they're very, they avoid buzzwords. They're very specific 
about the pain that they are seeing in your solution. They're seeing you're doing this one thing, and often, in my experience, this leads to X pain, and they're very specific about it, uh, both in the code and in the, in the description of the pain. And another thing that they do is that if they're, if they're having a conversation, they're very humble about their experience, knowing that your experience is probably very different. And because we have these different experiences, we have, I can learn from you because the types of problems that you have solved are going to be different from the types of problems that I've solved. And I'd like to know what trade-offs you make because of your experience that are different from the trade-offs that I make because of mine. And I've changed my mind on a lot of things uh, about code as I've had conversations with people on exorcism where I think one thing and then they're able to articulate a reason why that thing that I believe can be a real pain um, in, in the real world. And I've, I've changed my position and decided that I'm not going to do this thing that I thought was a good idea anymore because I, I recognize that that pain um, is, is, like the trade-off is not good enough. It's not a high enough, um, a high enough win. So when do you find time to schedule your practice? Oh, don't ask me that. <laughs> um, lately, I have been so swamped with work and with exorcism that I barely have time. I, I've barely had time to do any sort of practice. It's, it's very disheartening. Um, I've been, for two years, I get up in the morning and I do exorcism almost always first thing, just because if I don't, it's not going to get done. And... And then I have to go to work. <laughs> and so, um, and then I have to go home and sleep. So it's really, really, really hard. Um, I do some on the weekends, and sometimes I do it in the evenings, even though I'm exhausted. Um, but it's not, that's probably a terrible idea because it's not high quality practice. Um, and so it's been lately, it's been fits and starts. Um, it's been not good at all in terms of learning. Like I learn at work because I have to. I've learned at work because I'm doing things that I don't know how to do a lot of the time. Um, but I don't, I've, I've felt under so much pressure. I felt like I don't have the breathing space to go, you know, take a step back and learn the things that I really want to learn, to go deep on the things in Go that I feel like I'm lacking. Do you have one of those things in mind that you could talk about? Sure. Uh, how to use um, channels and go routines effectively. Like there's, uh. yeah, to like doing, do it, working with um, concurrency is something that in Ruby people just don't think about most yeah. of the time. I know. I mean, I, I think I know three people probably who are probably really good at it and they all probably wrote like web servers like Unicorn and Puma and that sort of thing. Um, but in Ruby, it's just not a language that is made for thinking about concurrent processes. And in Go, it's every day. Like, they're everywhere. You're always doing um, concurrent processing. It's, ma it's really made for it. It's beautiful. It's beautifully done for that. And so, like, I find myself writing concurrent code. And, of course, like, so there's... With, with some race conditions, it's like, oh, yeah, you have two processes. They shouldn't be writing to the same resources at the same time. They can read, but not write. That's fine. Um, so you'll, you'll see those and ca catch those most of the time. But then it's like, how do you use, like, there are all these patterns of how to use um, go routines and channels to solve specific types of patterns of problems. And I don't have a good grasp on that. And I would love to just go find, you know, 
50 examples of how people are using Go routines and see if I can classify them and see if I can like simplify the problem to be like not real world problems, but like the same pattern that I saw in the real world, turn it into a toy problem and then see if I can solve that see if I can solve it in two or three different ways using um, channels and Go routines. And right now I just haven't felt like I've had any mental space available, no, no cognitive resources available to do that. Right. Do you consider working on exorcism sort of practice, though? Or always, no. Or is it, no. <laughs> yeah, no, it's not. It's all, it's kind of, it's mostly, it's just like doing support. It's um, reviewing pull requests. It's fixing the odd bug. It's really, I feel like I'm kind of treading water a lot with exorcism um, lately and not really moving things forward, though a lot of other people are moving things forward. Like there are people, the Lisp track has, people have been doing an enormous amount of work on the Lisp track, making it good, figuring out how, how, how to, um, you know, run it on Travis CI so that the, we know that the problems and the solutions, the, uh, the example solutions are good. Um, so people are doing development on various parts of, of exorcism and moving it forward. But I would not, any of the stuff that I do on exorcism is not practice because it's not focused. It's kind of just randomly solving the problem of the day. Seems like you have a specific definition of practice. Yeah, probably. That's an interesting in thought. I, yeah, I do. Um, practice is, for me, a very specific thing. It's a very focused type of task. Um, it's working at the edge of your ability. So if I'm in my comfort zone, if I'm doing something that I know how to do, no matter how much I do it, I'm not practicing. I'm not going to be getting any better at it because I'm not um, pushing any edges. And also if it's too far outside of my comfort zone, if I'm in my what I call my panic zone, I'm also not practicing um, because my behavior is going to be completely erratic. It's like, oh, I, I figured it, like, I was able to do it once, you know, and then um, I couldn't do it again for the next seven times. It all completely failed. I have no idea what I was doing. I, I managed to solve it, but I don't know how, like, all of that panic zone stuff, it's, like, sometimes it can be fun. Mostly it's just terrifying, um, and I'm not practicing because I'm not getting any better. There's a there's a mid mid place right at the edge where I know that I'm kind of, like, I'm right beyond where I know how to do something, it's cognitively exhausting. It's really, really, really hard. And of course, it feels kind of awful because you're at that edge, you're never good at anything. That's the point. So it always feels like you're like, not only like, A, you suck, B, you never stop sucking, and C, it's exhausting. And so um, practice for me is at that place um, where it's exhausting, not where it's scary, not where it's comfortable. Um, and there are a lot of types of activities, I think, that um, fall under the sort of domain of practice. Um, you could do um, drills, which is sort of the, the, the thing where you do it over and over and over again, um, you repeat it, and if you make a mistake, you go back and you do it again correctly. Um, often drills are very, very focused and the better you get, the more focused the drills are. I've noticed in like when people talk about sports and the drills that they're doing, as they're getting better, they will focus in on, on smaller and smaller slivers, thinner and thinner slivers of the skill um, in the drill. 
um, there are simulations. People will play mock games where they're not going to stop and go back and do it over. If they make a mistake, they're going to keep going. But the simulation will often, like if you're doing a flight simulation, they'll put you in um, a lot of really complicated um, situations which are unlikely to occur, especially in the same session um, in real life. But they'll, it's sort of a, a heightened um, sort of um, exaggerated environment that gives you the opportunity to practice a lot of a lot of different skills um, over a short amount of time. And then you have things like case studies where you systematically go through, chess players do this a lot, um, you go through and you look at what um, a master of the craft did and then but you, you go, you only take a step and you look at the, the situation that they were in and then you analyze that situation and try to make a decision about or an evaluation about what you would do in the same situation. And then you compare what you would do to what they actually did and then you make an analysis about why they made the choice that they made. And so it's a cognitively very, very intense um, type of practice where you are constantly um, comparing, uh, comparing trade-offs, comparing solutions. Um, and then you have things like musicians do where they're practicing for a, um, like a, a, a specific performance and so they're practicing the exact piece that they're going to play and they do it over and over and over again. Um, so yeah, there are tons of different types of practice, but I think all of them are very, um, very deliberate, very focused, and they all happen at the edges of, of um, where you know how to do things. Practice and how to practice. Yeah. Pam, you're not saying anything. Are you okay? I'm alive. <laughs> I'm just to ask, I was wondering too. So, um, when you're not working on Exorcism or Slice, what do you? What are your interests outside of programming? Um, I'm terribly boring, and then I don't really have any. I uh, I I do read sci-fi. I really enjoy reading, you know, post-apocalyptic fiction. Um, so. Uh, that's that's one thing. Um, yeah, that's about it. <laughs> what are your favorite sci-fi series? Um, right. Well, Neil Stevenson is probably my favorite author. He wrote Cryptonomicon back in the day. Um, he wrote uh, Seven Eves very recently. He wrote Anathem um, a few years back. Some, he's written stories, really, really heavy sto stories sometimes. Well, heavy in, in sort of like big lots of words and lots of big ideas. Um, but he's written in a lot of different genres. And so you have any anything from like historical fiction with his Baroque cycle that is a huge story, not about people, but about ideas. And so you have real, most a lot of like real figures in history, in the history of science. Um, but the story, the book is not about, or the books are not about them. They're about the ideas and how these ideas evolved. And it's sort of a, a very slow uh, type of fiction, really, really sort of deep um, and interesting sort of fiction that some people like, some people don't like. And then you'll have things like Reemdy, which um, is a play on Read Me, which is totally like action it's like an you know a great action flick that you would watch with buttered popcorn and you know your feet on the table and so the whole book is just pure entertainment um and he's written um like political thriller kind of type thing he's written hard sci-fi um yeah so he's been all over the board and he's a really interesting author 
Neil Stevenson, I only know about because he had a Kickstarter for a sword fighting game with a really interesting video. Oh, was that the Mongoliad or something? I don't know what it was called. I don't, I don't think it ever was uh, successfully. It, it got funded, but I don't think, I think it got canceled. Oh, uh, yeah. It had this Kickstarter video that was uh, a warehouse of dozens of people doing like sword fighting. That's cool. I, I'd <laughs> never, I didn't realize that. I'll send you a link to the video. Cool. Yeah, he's a great storyteller. Yeah, I wish I had more interest. Like, there are people who do things like climbing and biking, and I don't know. <laughs> it's great. I, I wish I was that kind of person. Is your company remote, or do you have to go into an office? I'm completely remote, uh, except this week I'm in the office, which is... Um, it's an interesting thing. I, I enjoy working remotely. I find that very... Um, it, it's a lot easier for me to focus when I'm remote. But I do also occasionally like seeing people, so it's nice to come into the office and, and um, have face-to-face conversations and collaborate a little bit more closely on some things. When you're remote, do you actually work at home, or do you work like coffee shops or co-working places? Yeah, I work at home. I have a I have an office at home. How large is uh, Slice right now? Splice. Um, Splice. My bad. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, 12 people maybe? The engineering team is two full-time QA people, uh, the CTO, and then myself and one other person on the back end doing Go, and two people on the front end doing JavaScript. And then we also right now have a, an intern who's here for four months, uh, a Stanford student who's doing some C++ uh, sort of plug-in writing and stuff, interesting stuff. Um, and then there are a bunch of people who are sort of the artist management, uh, marketing, talk to important people type of thing that I have no idea what they do. And we have a couple of couple of designers, sort of front-end-y, HTML, CSS. Um, we have three people who are doing variations of design. I'm going to have to tell the PR people that I had this conversation. I got in trouble once because um, uh, I was, there was a, an article where I was talking about exorcism, but it was mentioned that I was working at Splice and I didn't mention it to the PR people. And they were like, you always have to tell us when stuff is happening in the media. <laughs> so they can like link to it if they want to? Uh, well, yeah, that also I have to say that I do not speak for my employer. <laughs> Nothing I say. <laughs> I do not speak for Splice. Um, my opinions are my own. Yeah, if you want to know really about what Splice is about, you should probably uh, read what the what the marketing people say. And also, like, the CEO and CTO, like, I'm not a vision person. Like, I don't have much vision. I'm not involved in the product development. I just, I'm kind of, like, more like a senior minion type person where I come in and I do my job. And so when they're, like, they have wonderful, great, big ideas about how they're going to change the music industry, and mostly I don't know what those are, because I'm just kind of, I come in and do my do my thing. So what uh, what attracted you to Splice? Was it Go or the music yeah. stuff? Or? Yeah, I don't actually, so now the PR people are really going to be mad. I don't actually care about music. I don't listen to music <laughs> myself. So it was basically just uh, the tech stack. Um, and I enjoy working with the, the developers that I work with. They're smart people. They're good people. They, I learn things every day from them. And so being able to work on a really, truly technically difficult problem, like these are, we are storing and transferring terabytes of data. <laughs> like it's ridiculous how much, um, sort of 
how, how big some of this data is. And I'm not talking big data as in you can't carry it in your purse, but, you know, some, there's, there are some really interesting unsolved hard problems in the space. And so that is very attractive to me even though I don't really care much about the music piece of it. Cool. So did anyone uh, warn you about picks, Katrina? No, but I have one. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Are you guys, uh, so what's your pick? What my pick is the Kathy Sierra keynote from Fluent. I'll, um, pull up the, I'll pull up the link right now. Yeah, so my pick is uh, if your city has an escape the room. Um, I did escape the room last weekend with some friends of CrossFit, and it was a, a really fun game. Uh, you just get locked in a room, and there's all kind of puzzles. You try to figure your way out. Uh, and uh, the way this worked, there was uh, 10 of us, and there were kind of too many peop- too many puzzles to like kind of do linearly. So it was a fun kind of like you know communications problem of figuring out like who solved what and you know what what things are red herrings. So it was just like kind of chaos, and we we made it out with uh, eight minutes to spare. What happens if they don't make it out? Lock they kill you. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you just starve. Can you give an example of a puzzle? Because I'm I'm picturing like a padlock and a bunch of like math in the wall. I mean, I don't want to give too many spoilers, uh, but like spoiler warning, like, I mean, there was a sign that was like free Wi-Fi and then it was like, oh, wait, there's actually a Wi-Fi network. Let's like pull out our phone and look at it. Oh, interesting. And then, yeah, names of things matter. and Yeah. Cool. It's like mist back in the day. Yeah, yeah. It's <laughs> like inexplicably, like you have no idea like what, how, where to start and you just start tearing stuff apart. And... I want to try cool. it, but I don't have confidence to wrangle 10 people together. I've been no, thinking about trying just, it. I mean, I just realized that that's basically, did, did you all ever do leadership thingies at camp? Like things like that? I totally did that stuff at camp. I don't like know where it would be like, yeah, oh, we have to like all stand on planks of wood and we have to move them forward, but we have to work together to do so. Those are like feats of Or like low ropes forces. And yeah. You have feats of strength. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so maybe my camp was a little bit more on the collaboration side than... <laughs> than Spartan camp that Justin went to. In the summers I just went to the swim club and played Street Fighter. <laughs> you went to you went to the pool to play with video games. Yeah, and eat French fries. <laughs> cool. Uh Justin, do you have a pick? Um Yes. Uh if you have a Rails app and you need breadcrumbs, there's this gem called Gretel. Uh as in Hansel and Gretel. Get the joke. Um I tried another breadcrumbs plugin. It didn't really work too well, uh, and it didn't have semantic uh, breadcrumbs, which, which which is what I needed for like Google, so that they display breadcrumbs on the search result. It, this was for SEO, um, but it was really cool. You like you make a config file and define like what your site essentially looks like in the config file, and then in any page you can just say breadcrumb, you know, X, and it will show the breadcrumbs leading up to that, and and link them all properly and have the correct. Uh, metadata for Google. So, yeah, it's on GitHub. At uh, I'm not gonna try and pronounce the name, but just search for Gretel Jim. Cool, Pam Diva pick. I do. I have. I picked a couple because luckily there's a couple cool things coming out this week. Uh, so one is exploring ES6 uh, from Axel Rashmeyer, who has these awesome. I mean, if you for people who aren't as skilled in JavaScript, he also is speaking JavaScript. If you already do JavaScript, then exploring ES6 is a it's available for free uh, in HTML, but then you should also spend money on it because it's great. So 
Uh, so plugging that and then keyboard IO, which we have talked about on the podcast before launched their Kickstarter. And so they're already doing pretty well. Wow. Like they literally just got another backer while I was watching. Um, so it's an open source keyboard. Uh, so it, you, you can back them and pre-order the keyboard and it comes with like in beautiful wood. It's got rainbow backlights and stuff and, um, they're completely programmable. Huh? They're hand shaped. What are the keyboard? The keyboard. Like a split keyboard. Shapes. It looks, looks like a it looks like a hand, like your thumb and your fingers. I mean, it looks like a butterfly. Yeah, the keys like are a butterfly. in the shape of your oh, hand. Okay. <laughs> I mean, the keys are ergo, yeah. Um, but uh, but yeah, and they also have uh, they're doing a tour around the country. They're stopping in Philly too. Um, it's where you can meet up and try out their keyboards. Wow, when's that? So I'm uh. It's sometime like before this podcast is published. Oh, uh, okay. <laughs> AKA Thursday. Um, and uh, so, so by this time, it won't be in Philly, but uh, they are in 23 cities. So chances are, you know, if you're in a city, see if they're coming around. Basically, I'm probably going to back it. I just am going to wait until I get to try it with my own, with my own paws and then I'll buy it. So, because I've, I've been craving a second Ergo, so... And it comes with all the source code and everything, so maybe I could actually learn something. That's really cool. Cool. Uh, Giovanni, the pick? Yeah, so my music pick is uh, an album called Beneath the Skin by a band of Monsters and Men. That's pretty chill and awesome. And uh, my programming pick is uh, Closer Script. Um, I've been playing with it, and... I had some conversations uh, with some other ClojureScript developers and some cool things are coming out for it. And you can do some cool things with it also. Um, so those are my picks. Awesome. Uh, so thanks so much for coming on, Katrina. Where can people find out more about you? Oh, that's a hard question. Um, I don't. I kind of have a website because it has my name on it, but it doesn't really have anything there. Um, so I wouldn't even bother going there. Twitter, I sometimes tweet very occasionally. Uh, your best bet might be finding my name on the Confreaks website. Yeah, your website does link to a lot of really awesome talks. Oh, okay. So you go to my website. I'll give you <laughs> <laughs> thanks so much for having me. Yeah, thanks so much for coming on. Really appreciate yeah. it. Yeah, thank you. All right, take care. See you. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.